Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Bill and I'm here with Steve. Say good morning, Steve. Good morning, Steve. And this is the... (laughs) We'll leave that in, I think. Oh, no. Welcome to the third episode of The Field Guides. Just as in our first two episodes, today we want to give you the experience of what it's like to be out on the trail and in the field. And each episode we will pick a natural history topic and then go out to a natural place like we are today and share with you everything we learned about that topic. So today, we are at a place called the Boston County Forest. Uh, this is, again, in a suburb of Buffalo, and I know very little about this place. I have never been here myself, <laughs> at all, yeah. So I feel uh, like I've shirked my responsibility, because it seems to have become my unofficial job to find out the history of the places we go to. And it's usually <laughs> my job to slack off until the last second. <laughs> but uh, I do know that this place is about 700 acres, and it's part, uh, it's county land. So we're in Erie County. That's the county that Buffalo and its suburbs are in. Mm-hmm. And this was part of a group of properties that Erie County bought back in the 60s and 70s. And they, at the time, they were expecting Buffalo to grow uh, at such a rate that these land banks would be in place. So when the suburbs became more populated, they would have these nice little park lands. Oh, it's, it's similar to Hunter's Creek? It or? is. It's, yeah. It was part of the same purchases that Erie County made about 50 years ago. But obviously since that time, Buffalo didn't grow at the pace they thought it would. So these lands just kind of stayed out here and uh, were visited, you know, now and then by the public. The county usually told people that they're not open to the public, but people would go anyway. Yeah. Uh, but in the last 10 years or so, the county has put in parking lots and uh, trail signs. So there was that nice sign out at the road. I was oh, surprised yeah. to see that one. Really came nice in. sign. It looked uh, brand new. We are here on a, uh, a beautiful, crisp November morning. And uh, I'm going to start, before we introduce our topic, I'm going to ask you, Steve, uh-huh. uh, what did you do last night? What did I do last night? Yeah. Say at like uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, what were you doing? I was sleeping. <laughs> All right. You were sleeping. That's good. So when you woke up this morning, were you hungry? I was not. All right. That's not the answer you're hoping <laughs> But on many mornings when you wake up, are you hungry? Oh, I'm usually very hungry. I'm not the kind of person that can skip breakfast. But you didn't do anything all night. You just laid there sleeping. Yeah. So why are you hungry? You're going to tell me, I'm sure. <laughs> you are a, a warm-blooded animal, right? Mm-hmm. If we uh, want to be scientific, we could say you're an endothermic animal. Yes. Right? I'm warmer than my ambient temperature That's in right. the room. You can maintain a, a constant body temperature. And doing that requires energy. And one of the costs of being an endothermic animal, uh, warm-blooded, is that we are always using energy no matter what we do. That means we always need fuel. Our fuel, obviously, is food. So... Ooh. During times of the year when food is scarce, during times of uh, famine, you could say, some warm-blooded animals have evolved an excellent coping strategy. Uh, if they're going to stay where they live and not migrate, what are they going to do? They can hibernate. They can go into a torpor state, which I think is more accurate to say than hibernation. Like our last episode, there's a lot of debate. Biologists love to argue. And uh, there's a lot of debate about what exactly hibernation means, what torpor means. Then you can throw other terms like estivation and brumation in. Yeah. uh, Just to muddy the waters further. But we're going to try to make some sense of all of that today. Mm -hmm. And uh, give you folks out there an idea of what hibernation means, what it's all about. 
and we're gonna take a, a look at one animal in particular, one of our somewhat local species. We don't have them right around uh, where we are now, but in parts of Western New York and in many places in the Northeast, the black bear is at home. I've seen black bears in Allegheny. So a little bit south, um, also, also I know I've seen them in the Adirondacks, but that's mostly like my family would drive out to the garbage dumps. Right. And we'd just see black bears over there. <laughs> so in, in New York State, I was looking at one of the range maps, uh, there seems to be black bear can be found in a lot of areas in New York State, except uh, around Lake Ontario. There seems to be kind of a window mm. around Lake Ontario where you're not going to find black bears. I think that's mostly because there's farmland, there's a lot of settlement. Rochester, city of Rochester is right on Lake Ontario. Black bears are kind of interesting. When I was out west, the black bears weren't black. It was oh, still yeah. Ursus Americanus, right. but they, there's lots they're of like brown bears, like tan. Right, there's, yeah. there's a lot of subspecies in there. Believe it or not, I think on the Wikipedia page for black bears, there's actually uh, a chart they made up. Someone did a study of black bear coloration yeah. by region. And in New York State, and in most of the Northeast states where you find black bears, they're 100% black. Yeah. 100% of the population is black. But the farther west you go, the more variation you get. Yeah. And I think it was like somewhere in California, maybe like Yosemite or something like that, it was actually a much higher percentage was light brown or cinnamon colored than black. So they're still black bears, but they just have different colors. All right, <laughs> let's get to hibernation. Fine. All right, so uh, in my research, I came across the guy who seems to me the researcher who seems to be like the uh, superstar of hibernation research. Did you come across Brian Barnes? This guy's name kept coming up. Yeah. Uh, he's the director of the Institute of Arctic Biology at the University of Alaska. He's been doing research on hibernating animals for decades. And most of his research focuses on the Arctic ground squirrel, who obviously uh, is a, a local animal for him. But he says that hibernation is an adaptation to famine. And I think that's a, a good way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't be hibernating if food was abundant. Right. And would you agree that animals hibernate not so much to escape the cold, but to escape the lack of food? Yeah, there's animals that go into torpor that live in warmer climates right. too. So obviously, it's it not wouldn't the temperature. be. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be the temperature. At least that's not true across the board. So during hibernation, the animal usually doesn't stay hibernating the whole time. I almost said asleep, but, <laughs> but that that is not the case at all. That sleeping is not hibernation. Yes, and I think we should say that now. Yeah, that those are two very different things. We like to think of hibernation as being an animal saying. Oh, this winter's coming. There's not going to be a lot of food. I'm just going to sleep for a few months. It'll <laughs> be so sleep nice. For a while. It'll be great. Yeah. That is not what hibernation is. No, no. All right. So hibernation is found in a wide range of species, from mammals to snakes to fish, and in mammals, it's found mostly uh, in smaller species, uh, many bats and rodents, but bears do it. Uh, even some primates do it. Uh, in my research, I came across there's at least three species of lemur in Madagascar uh, yeah. that hibernate. And the more we find out, and the more researchers find out, the more complex this state, this behavior seems to be. Uh, but as I said, it's, bless you, it's all about conserving energy uh, because we endotherms burn a lot just keeping our bodies at temp. And whether a, a critter hibernates or migrates, it's really just a quirk of evolution, mm -hmm. uh, what has worked best for uh, their ancestors in the past. But when we ask the question, why do mostly small animals hibernate uh, it's because for those little critters migration would just cost way too much energy yeah uh, it just makes sense to stay put and uh, go into a state where you're not going to require too much food 
uh, it's really relative to body size. Uh, larger animals, they're less apt to hibernate because of the additional energy required to warm up their large bodies. So something like a moose, it would require so much energy to bring its body, uh, its body temp back up to a, a normal state that it wouldn't be worth it. Mm -hmm. But there are some larger animals that do it, like the black bear we're gonna talk about, but the black bear does it a little differently than most hibernating animals. And that's why some people even say, oh, black bears aren't really hibernating. Yeah. But we'll get into that. Right. But for now, why don't we talk about hibernation versus torpor? Because you had some points about that. I'm a little obsessed with taxonomy. So if I, <laughs> if I could do that with just ideas, I, I, I always like to do that. So there's a few different ways that mammals deal with cold climates. I know we just said it was more of a food-related um, phenomenon, but... Sure. Um, but in terms of the cold climates, which usually associate with uh, hibernation, there's a few different things. You can either evolve a larger body size, and you know about this, right? How there's a ratio between volume and surface area. And, there's and... some kind of law about that. The colder a habitat is, the larger the animals will be. That's exactly right. So if you're trying to deal with the cold climate, you'll evolve a larger body size. Or this right. is one of the ways to deal with the cold, is evolving a large, uh, a large body size, because then you have a large mass. Um, less surface area for that volume right because the less surface area the less heat that's going to escape um, so that's one way um, another way is increase your insulation or um, or some sort of behavioral uh, thermal regulation you have thick fur or something or maybe you huddle together with other oh, you okay. know with other um, members of your group or something um, another one is increased rate of metabolic heat production and that's something that you see in uh do you know what a neonate is is that a baby? It's just a fancy word for yeah. a newborn. Yeah, I just, I, 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 I had completely forgot about that term before reading up on it. Um, and so they'll actually huddle together for warmth, so they're doing this behavioral thing. Um, and usually the mother's warmth also helps with that. But when the mother's out, they can actually heat themselves up. So they're actually, they're actually a lot warmer than they would be otherwise. But it's costly, of course. But a, a number of newborns can do this. And then the last one is you just abandon your normal body temperature uh, and you allow for hypothermia. And that's what we're really going to be focusing on. And, and that's sort of why I, I ended the list with that one. So in terms of hypothermia, that's just a fancy word for saying that your body temperature becomes closer to the ambient temperatures in your environment. Right. Um, and so there's a couple different ways. There's the daily torpor. And there's the seasonal torpor. Um, and this is what Bill was hoping that I was just going to jump right into, I'm sure. And so daily torpor is just, uh, I think it's generally when, and I think, I don't know if this is true for every every species, but usually the animal's asleep during the day, right? Folks, there, what you're going to find is in all of these terms, torpor and hibernation, there's a lot of disagreement out there. So the, the versions of daily torpor that mm. uh, I came across, and in the... The article I was reading, it actually said, this should actually be called nightly torpor because the, the two examples I looked at were for birds. Okay. So during the winter time, black-capped chickadees use daily torpor. Really? Which I was surprised to find out. To make it through the winter, it's like low-grade short-term hibernation. Their temperature drops between 15 and 22 degrees Fahrenheit. So at night, their temperature will drop that much. Wow. Uh, and it saves them something like 50 to 60% of their energy needs. They do two things, especially during storms, you'll see them really like puffed up. So they have the insulation going on and they're doing the torpor. So they're attacking it from at least two different angles. Two different angles. So for black capped chickadees, they do that at night typically. But it okay. said they will do it during the day, during, uh, you know, harsh periods. I think hummingbirds also do it at night. And yeah. they do. That's right. So for hummingbirds, their temperature drops 22 degrees Celsius 
I mean, that's a huge drop. Wow, yeah, that's and, way more than a bear. And their heart rate goes from 1,000 beats per minute to 100 beats per minute. Jeez. Uh, and that's a 60% energy savings. Mm-hmm. And this was crazy. I found that over the course of a night, a ruby-throated hummingbird, even when it's in a torpor state, uh, this kind of mini hibernation state, their body mass can drop 10%. Holy cow. They can lose 10% of their body mass. But they would lose yeah. a lot more than that if they weren't in this reduced metabolic yeah, state. Yeah, they'd probably yeah. lose. Because their metabolism they is so fast. They would just fast. die. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if, if this is completely accurate, but a couple sources I was looking at said the hummingbird has the highest metabolic rate of any warm-blooded animal. So it, it needs to eat so often mm-hmm. that it really couldn't survive overnight. Yeah. So hummingbirds are doing this even during the summertime. They're going into daily torpor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So all, yeah, all year round. What might be called nightly torpor. But you were saying that some animals, in your research, they were doing it during the day. I'm finding that most small mammals that go into daily torpor, they do go into torpor during the day, and then they're more active at night. Okay. Um, or I saw a couple different charts. Some of them showed, showed activity just in those two crepuscular areas. Uh, dawn and dusk. Yeah, dawn and dusk. And then um, other ones were just, they were only in torpor during the day. And then on the extremes of the charts, which would cover all of night, um, would be when they are active. And metabolic rates are a lot faster. And folks, you can uh, impress your friends with that word, crepuscular. Crepuscular, You, you can yeah. ask people, are deer diurnal or nocturnal? <laughs> yeah. And most people aren't quite sure. And you could say, ah, they're crepuscular. That joke's means... on you, because they're crepuscular. <laughs> Most active at, at twilight hours. Um, actually, they're <laughs> crepuscular. <laughs> yeah, maybe you don't want to use that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, uh, I mean, is Let me jump in here. Sure, sure, go Because ahead. there's some confusion about terms here. Right. So let's first look at hibernation. So right. I think most biologists agree that it's a long-term state in which body functions are reduced and the animal enters a coma-like state that takes some time to recover from. But then you also have torpor, and this causes some confusion because sometimes it's an umbrella term for all metabolic and temperature-reducing functions in an animal. You can have short-term torpor, like daily or nightly torpor, but then some biologists consider hibernation like deep torpor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but torpor, as I said, torpor is also known as short periods of reduced function. So I think for the purposes of this episode, why don't we think of torpor as an umbrella term that kind of covers everything. Think of it like a hole. Uh, when yeah. you and I go to sleep at night, that's kind of right at the surface. Yeah, uh, it's our just, body temperature stays the same. Right. Our metabolic rates are only slightly depressed. Really, sleep is like a mental thing. Most mm-hmm. of the, the difference is in your brain function. Uh, your breathing rate and heart rate does drop a little bit. But it's so close. It's yeah. Not, yeah, it's not big. Difference. But then when you go deeper down that hole, then you're getting to like daily torpor. Mm-hmm. And then when you go deep, deep down into that hole, uh, then you're in what we could call deep torpor or hibernation. Yes. Uh, which is what like a woodchuck would do. Most people think of, uh, when they think of hibernation, they think of a woodchuck. You could not rouse a woodchuck. If we found a woodchuck hole right now, uh, a hibernation den, and dug it up, uh, we could take that woodchuck out and abuse it. We could shake it and throw it up in the air, and it still wouldn't come out of its hibernation Why state. Why do you want to abuse woodchucks? Why would you? <laughs> For science! I would just... <laughs> no, I would never do that. Did you know woodchucks are marmots? I think I did know that. I I didn't know. Because a hoary marmot just looks like a, a woodchuck with a different color. Right. Yeah. I guess I've never really come across other marmots yes. then. And I think as, uh, as as naturalists of a sort, we are obligated at this point to say that woodchuck and groundhog, same animal. You know, oh, 
Who do we have? Chipmunk. Ah, chipmunk. Eastern chipmunk. And we can argue about whether a chipmunk is a hibernator or not. Did you pick up the little... I think so. Yeah, I could hear that. Nice. That's cool. So Um, a little chipmunk was fascinated by our discussion. So uh, Groundhog Day can also be known as Woodchuck Day. They are the same critter, just mm -hmm. with two different names. Did you know they're in the squirrel family, marmots? Uh, I'm going to pretend and say yes, I did know that. So it's... I mean... According to my sources, <laughs> uh, a.k.a. the Peterson's Guide to Mammals, yeah. squirrels and their allies, the Scuridae, yes. um, that's prairie dogs, marmots, ground squirrels, tree squirrels, chipmunks, and flying squirrels. Okay. And the flying squirrels are the only nocturnal member of that group. Oh, I didn't so, know. Yeah. Apparently. Have you, <laughs> have you heard? I've had many people tell me. I don't know if I've ever come across this from a scientific source, but that like here in, in the Northeast, flying squirrels are our most common species of squirrel. That would be cool if it's true. I've only ever seen flying squirrels twice in my life. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know if you've if had I, any better luck. I've seen them once. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was one of those situations where I wasn't 100% sure, mm-hmm. but for the sake of a good story, I convinced myself that it was a flying squirrel. <laughs> I didn't see it 100%, and we all had our headlamps on. We like to keep our hands free. Oh, yeah, if you guys, if you guys are listening and you, and you like to go hiking at night, but you don't use like a hands-free light... Do that. Switch to that. You'll have the best time in the world. Yeah, headlamp. And we're just sort of hanging out, looking through the woods. And then from behind us, and then into our light, came a flying squirrel just... But you definitely knew it was a flying squirrel. I mean, I don't think there's anything else it could have been, just based on the size and the shape and everything else. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the difference between hibernation and sleep, if you're ready for that. Um, Yeah, sure. Let's go ahead. Because, as we mentioned a few minutes ago... We kind of have, and I had, before I did research for this episode, I had the idea that hibernation was just a really awesome sleep, (laughs) like a really awesome long nap where you're like, screw this cold weather and lack of food. I'm going to go underground or wherever and go to sleep. And when I wake up, it'll all be over. Sometimes animals will actually have to wake up out of their hibernation to To go to sleep to get that that effect. Yeah, Because sleep, in order to experience sleep, you're body functions need to be at a certain level and hibernation torpor are below those levels Mm -hmm. so you actually need the animals need to rouse themselves a little bit to go to sleep yeah so that guy brian barnes i was talking about oh yeah the the director of the arctic ecology uh institute he said that hibernation is like long periods of semi-consciousness punctuated by costly naps Uh, and the need for sleep slowly accumulates during torpor so as these guys are actually hibernating they're accumulating a need for sleep right so once in a while they'll need to raise their body temperature expend energy burn fat Mm -hmm. to get to a state where they can sleep for a little bit and as i was listening to it it seemed the best analogy that we could think of is like if you were a hibernating animal it would be like months of sleeping on a plane which is the worst kind of sleep because you're not really asleep you're kind of yeah. kind of aware of what's going right, on you're right. just like oh my god i wish this would be over yeah <laughs> you know just just as an example of what you're talking about how waking up from hibernation is costly i just have a quick figure this this actually comes from a, a textbook that i used that a friend of mine let me borrow for this episode for mammalogy um and the, the textbook gives the example that alpine marmots these arousal periods can actually use up to 70 percent of their hibernation yeah. reserves yeah which i is came across nuts. percentages like that yeah yeah i think i saw as much as 80 in some animals really really that coming out to take these little naps during hibernation it's huge it costs a lot yeah so 
that seems like the most costly thing during hibernation. Yeah. A lot of people think of needing this stored fat and everything else to deal with just staying in torpor for this long, but really it's the times that you come out of torpors that you really need it for. Right, so. that you really need yeah. to sleep. And when animals do come out of hibernation, a lot of them show signs of sleep deprivation. Oh, right, right. Yeah. I heard this. Yeah. It's just, I just imagine it's got to be awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you wake up and you're groggy and terrible. I wonder yeah. if, if some animals come out of hibernation and just think, oh, I should have just migrated. <laughs> <laughs> they wake up on the wrong side of the hibernaculum. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just as further proof of this, uh, I came across research that showed the brain waves of hibernating animals closely resemble waking brain waves. So what's going on in their brain in hibernation is actually similar to when they're awake uh, and a lot different from when they're asleep. So don't think of hibernation as this peaceful slumber that just goes on for months. It actually, it kind of stinks. Too. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be awful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, what do you want to talk about next? Uh, what goes on in the body or do you have more to add about hibernation and sleep? So we talked about that animals wake up periodically and long torpor periods in hibernation, they're actually not all that common. You usually see longer torpor periods early on in hibernation and then shorter torpor periods later on in hibernation. All right, so to continue my analogy before, of before we have torpor, you consider it like a hole that yes. consciousness goes down. So they're deep down that hole, deep mm -hmm. in torpor, at the beginning of hibernation yeah and they'll bounce back up once in a while but as hibernation goes on they'll do it more often they're doing it more often okay. right and so in rodents the maximum period for torpor is like 12 to 33 days wow that's a long time though. but um there was an 80 day period recorded for a little brown bat wow. which we do have in this area the myotis lucifugus yeah that my dad says the same thing about galls yeah. galls are rats with wings <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but but at least at least bats are mammals. Yeah. So in terms of how is arousal triggered, there's two main ways that it's triggered. I don't even know if the second one's really a trigger. Okay. I, uh, but the first one is this alarm arousal. And this one's really interesting because it actually has a lot to do with temperature. It's when there's a rapid drop in the environmental temperature that the animal can't compensate for in their torpor state. Uh, okay. So their body's just like, oh, no, 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 no. Too low. Oh, no. And then it, so, so it automatically starts waking itself up. The metabolism speeding up. The, the animal starts to, to warm. It's like and that, the, the person you're sleeping with pulls the blanket out <laughs> right, and you right. wake up. <laughs> and, and that one's called alarm arousal. And then there's the, the second type, which I said isn't even really a trigger, but it's just independent of external factors. And it just happens automatically. I guess just a time limit that it's just like, oh, every now and then I it's have internal. to wake up. An yeah, it's time. like an internal clock yeah. that, that automatically happens. Or if the temperature drops precipitously, okay. then, uh, <laughs> then, then, the, uh, then the animal will have to uh, wake up to compensate for that. And this is actually a super crazy thing. I don't know if you came across similar numbers in this, but sometimes arousal happens rapidly. Okay. I, I have two extreme examples. In a shrew, it can be 13 minutes to get out of torpor. And then in a bear, it's like half a day to get out of torpor. So is this at the end of hibernation? No, I think this is during the arousal periods. So, oh, so just these little periods of arousal during hibernation. Yeah, so if you find a, a shrew hibernating, you have 13 minutes to mess around. No, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's going to wake them up. Entry time is what takes a long time. For a shrew, it's like 35 minutes. Well, that's still pretty quick. So 13 minutes to come out of torpor, yeah. 35 minutes to enter torpor. Okay. And then for a bear, it's 12 and a half hours to exit torpor, but to enter torpor, 138 and a half hours, or that's 5.75 days. Wow. Right. So they have to just 
chill out for a long time. But yeah, this, these were the extremes on the chart for time that it takes to go into torpor versus time that it takes to, um, to exit torpor. And I think this is a good segue because I want to talk a little bit about like how the animal, the animal's body knows it's time. Right. Go, yeah. Because you have uh, exterior cues, what we call uh, exogenous cues, mm-hmm. uh, and these could be photo period, you know, length of day, could be temperature, could even be barometric pressure and humidity. Oh wow! Uh, so those can be cues, and then there's also uh, internal cues, or what we call endogenous cues. So these can be hormonal, or they can be tied to their circadian ry- rhythms. Um, and I came across a new term called circannual rhythms. Uh, and apparently oh, yeah. we, we even have these rhythms. Um, well, so these compared with to, circadian right, rhythms. Which would be like daily. Mm-hmm. Um, circannual rhythms are yearly rhythms. Because they found that some animals that live their lives completely underground will still go into hibernation. So they do not have like, oh. photo period. Um, the atmosphere or temperature right, may not be changing drastically. Yeah. But they'll still go into hibernation. So it's an internal circannual rhythm that tells them somehow they know it's time to go into hibernation. Nice. Um, so some animals, when they're getting ready for hibernation, they will prepare a den, and you used what I think is an awesome term. Hibernaculum? A hibernacula, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. So that's basically a place to stay. And then when it comes to food, some animals are going to build up that layer of body fat, and I think that's what most people think of. You know, yeah. in the fall, oh, the animals are out. They're eating a lot of food to get the body fat built up. But a lot of little animals can't build up enough fat. So yeah, they will store food. Yeah, you only go into that fat storing phase if that's something that you can actually do. Right. Like chipmunks, that little guy we just saw, they gather food and they basically sleep on that bed of food. Mm-hmm. And the, when they rouse, they'll eat. You know what that stage is called, right? That stage of, of just gorging yourself on food and water? Uh, the gluttony stage? No, it's hyperphagia. Yeah, phagia. Phagia, hyperphagia. Yeah. So that has to do with eating. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I forget whatever, uh, eating insects, it's uh, something phagia. Yeah, I'll just I'll just say this right now as long as we're talking about hyperphagia. So for black bears specifically, this is the only thing I wrote down any stats for. Black bears, if they're given unlimited food, they're going to eat 5,000 to 8,000 kilocalories per day. And that's during normal activity. But but then during hyperphagia, where they're doing this excessive eating and drinking, they're going to take in 15,000 to 20,000 kilocalories per day when the food is unlimited. Right. So th- these were obviously done in studies where they just had unlimited food for bears during this time and bears will actually they'll forego eating if it's getting too close to the time that they really should start hibernating okay like they'll be like nope i i'm good i have to i have to begin this process and if they can't find enough food they'll delay hibernation i came across right right and and also with uh, they need a certain amount of water as well because it's sure yeah well food and water but if they don't have the water then they definitely can't go into hibernation so now do you know which system of the body mostly controls hibernation Oh, I bet I know. Take a guess. The circulatory system? The endocrine system. Really? Yeah. I was thinking the blood because I, I, I had seen some research on that. So but. it's glands in the body alter the amount of hormones being released, uh, and they can control just about every physiological aspect of hibernation. So like the thyroid controls metabolism, uh, the pituitary gland controls fat buildup, uh, heart rate and breathing rate, all those things. Hmm. Uh, and when you have a warm-blooded animal going into hibernation, I think right now we should talk about set point. Did you come across that? No, I don't know it. Okay, so that's like a, a thermometer. So think about in the winter time. Uh, Steve is a apartment owner now. Oh right. So <laughs> during the winter time, I own the whole apartment <laughs> complex. <laughs> Are you in control of your thermostat? You got to be, right? Uh, we've never messed with it, but okay. Yeah, I don't know. So as a homeowner, I know like during the winter time, 
I will adjust my thermostat. So at night, my house drops to about, uh, I think I have it set at like 62 degrees. Okay. I'm trying to conserve energy. Yeah. Because if I don't set that, you know, overnight, my house is going to be staying at 70 degrees when I don't really need it to. We're under the covers. We're warm. Yeah. So hibernating animals, they have this internal thermostat where it's set at a certain temperature. Because just like my house, if I have my set point too low, it's going to cause damage. Mm-hmm. Like if I just turn off my thermostat or set it at, say, 30 degrees. Your water pipes uh, freeze. Right, my water pipes are going to freeze. That's bad news. The my, structural integrity <laughs> of your house, really. My yeah. wife is going to be upset. <laughs> yeah. It'll be bad. That's the most important part, really. <laughs> so uh, these hibernating animals, they know if they let their body temperature drop too low, that's bad. Mm-hmm. So there's some set point. Uh, for some animals, it may be just above freezing. Uh, some animals, it, it actually may be just below freezing. Like there's some ground squirrels there where their body temperatures actually drop to a few degrees below freezing. With supercooling, the, the liquid in their body can actually drop below freezing without ice crystals forming, which yeah. is an amazing thing. We, we could do a whole episode on that. So mm-hmm. for right now, just know, though, that most hibernating animals, if they're warm-blooded, their body temperatures are not dropping below freezing. Oh, no, definitely no. not. No. And what will happen then is if the ambient temperature starts to drop and their body temperatures start to drop, once it hits that set point, then they start to rouse. Yeah. Their bodies know, oh, we got to wake up a little bit and lift the temperature up. So when the body temperature reaches the set point, the metabolism kicks in and it burns fat reserves. Mm-hmm. And if temperature did drop too low, even in some animals if it drops you know, down into the 30s, the animal would have to burn enormous reserves to heat back up. So the animal has evolved to know, like, what's the lowest my body temperature can get where I can rouse, burn some fat, and I'm not going to be burning too much fat. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to have enough in reserves to make it through the rest of the winter. But let's talk about the basics of what happens when animals go into this deep torpor, this hibernation state. So heart rate drops, right? Yes. Um, So I found that chipmunk, their heart rate goes from 200 down to five beats per minute. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Um, and breathing rate, I love this one, breathing rate can drop down to 50% of normal rate to 100%. Whoa. And that, that would be dead <laughs> for, for a lot of animals. But uh, there's some reptiles that do not take a breath yeah. during their hibernation state. Yeah, that's uh, intense. So some sources I was seeing were actually breaking up the bear cycle, yearly cycle, into five stages. Yeah. So you had like Stage one would be hibernation, and then you have stage two when you're sort of coming out of it is walking hibernation, and then you have your stage three, which is normal activity during the summer and the times when they're they're foraging and everything, and then hyperphagia, which we already went through, which was the the gluttony phase, Um, (laughs) and and then stage five was the fall transition, and I think this is kind of interesting because this is when the bears are sort of preparing. The bears become increasingly lethargic, and sometimes they're resting up to like 22 or more hours per day, often near water because they they need that water. This is near uh, hibernation time? Near hibernation. This is the fall transition into hibernation. Did you see they become nocturnal at that time? So at least in one study, it said that preparing for hibernation, they become nocturnal. Well, Well, their active heart rate during this fall transition falls from 80 to 100 beats per minute to 50 to 60 beats per minute Whoa. and that's not even hibernation this is just, just in ready. preparation um, and the sleeping heart rate falls from 66 uh, to 80 beats per minute to less than 22 beats per minute during this fall Whoa. transition so the bear is going through some pretty intense uh, changes even entering, during yeah. oh yeah wow but it's still crazy it still takes them almost six days to get into this I, what i say 5.75 yeah, days to yeah. get into uh torpor yeah. for bears their temperature doesn't drop all their temperature is not dry. it's cool. like seven degrees celsius it drops yeah, yeah. which i mean that that's still a bit but it's, but it's, it's very uh it's an anomaly for an animal that many pe- people consider a hibernator right and we'll talk about that but 
I wanted to talk about pooping. Oh, <laughs> or the lack of there. The lack okay. of pooping. So, when animals, most animals, when they go into hibernation, what's going on with their waste? <laughs> they're just well, not. They're not making it, or it's yeah. being recycled. It's I know. Being recycled. I know the urea is recycled at least. I think it's like ninety-nine point seven percent or something is recycled. And for a lot of animals that don't eat during their hibernation time, of course, no food is is going through. So why would mm-hmm. they be defecating at all? Right. So uh, they're usually not drinking. They're usually not eating. Uh, I did find some evidence that uh, some rodents, when they're hibernating, do urinate. Oh. Uh, but I did read one article that said, "Oh no, bears do urinate during hibernation." But That's when not I what read I've the heard. article, yeah, yeah. But when I read the article, it said that it's like five percent of what they're normally producing during. And I'm like, so they're just wet in the bed. What is it? You dropped? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the big thing with hibernation is that no drinking, no eating, no urinating, yeah. no defecating. It's just. That's one of the crazy yeah. parts. So, yeah, I mean, bears, they become a closed system for yeah, a while. It's nuts. Uh, and the urea is broken down into amino acids by bears. So, the, as you mm. said, they're recycling it. Uh, and bears, they just get enough water. They stay hydrated uh, by taking moisture out of their body fat. I mean, that, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. In my mind. Mm-hmm. It just made me think of all those sci fi movies where they show people coming out of you know, hibernation and space travel, and they just hop out of their pod and, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they just make it seem so simple when, actually, they'd come out of there probably in a really bad mood, just like, oh, and they take, you know, a few days to yeah. recover from that. Yeah, they are doing some research where they're actually trying to find out what makes it possible for bears to hibernate. Oh, yeah. Because then they could actually use it in space travel or they could use it in something in like medicine that. So, oh yeah, yeah. well and I actually fine have... medicine medicine whatever <laughs> but for us dreamers for us believers out there <laughs> it's space travel that's what it's really about the advancements in like physics and, and mathematics and whatnot that's really where all our technology in our hospitals comes from so I want to see it for sci-fi first and then as a consequence of, of NASA coming up with these incredible technologies our hospitals will get better so focus on NASA and your health will be a consequence of that maybe you'll help people on a daily basis <laughs> i don't care about the people <laughs> let's move on before we start turning more people up <laughs> we were driving down a mountain once when i was out west and a bear just like sprinted in front of our car and just like into the into the sagebrush and, we're, and i was like oh that was cool and my partner was like what are you talking about that was awesome that was and he actually event. he parked the car and he actually started searching around for bears like i don't think you're supposed to search for bears i don't and, and not only that but we ended up tracing its tracks which are kind of cool they're they're a bit pigeon-toed yeah. the bears there um and also you're not going to confuse a bear's track with anything else because there's nothing else that size right. it was not only a large black bear. well it was a it was one of the cinnamon ones but it was this large black bear that ran in front of the truck but it was also its cub so a slightly smaller bear that ran out in front and then upon searching the area, which I was very nervous about, I didn't really want to mess with a bear or anything, we actually found tracks of a third bear, like distinct, there was three bears, even though we only saw two, and the, the third set of tracks looked smaller. So I was like, I don't want to be here if there's a mother and cubs. A mother and cubs. When people think of black bears, they're always like, oh, don't get between a mother and her cub or anything. I was at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage a few years ago when they had a mammologist talking, and he was like, that's... I'm not like, exactly true. It's it's more it's too. more of a myth. Um, black bear cubs, they can climb or whatever. You know, right. like they're they don't have much to worry about. You know, the mother will just run, the cub will run, or go up a tree or something. And so th- it's not actually a ton to worry about. But in research that I was looking at for this episode, 
they were comparing the temperaments of black bears to the temperaments of something like a grizzly bear. And so black bears, they're highly dependent on forest ecosystems for raising their cubs, for, for eating, for everything else. Whereas grizzly bears have moved out of the forest and they're sort of in these more open areas, these yeah. more like uh, prairies and whatnot. And because there's so much more risk in the prairies, the bears have become that much more aggressive. Uh. And so I'm thinking that if the big difference between temperaments has something to do with habitat, if you're in a forest, you're maybe more protected and all this other stuff. But if you're out in the if open, if a sagebrush isn't a forest, it's like a field of shrubs. If maybe a black bear is out of the forest ecosystem, if he's more uh, in this shrubby area, then, then maybe maybe they would be more aggressive. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I wasn't specifically thinking this at the time, but after reading about this research, I was like, oh. I don't think you have to worry. Black bears, usually, you don't have to worry. I don't want to be anywhere near a polar bear or a grizzly bear. I've heard yeah. that they would just, like, hunt you for fun, even if they don't want to eat you very much. So, I love bears. I think bears should be protected. In fact, that that's a very, very important oh, yeah. thing. And we'll yeah. probably talk about that near the end of the podcast. But um, especially areas that bears hibernate are very, very important. And, and we'll important, touch on that later. Important predators, too. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, important Broad predators. Species. They're keystone species in yeah. a number of areas. Sure. Um, All right, let's talk Wow, about I can't believe we got off topic for so long. That's let's, right. let's just start walking again. Maybe we could see something. All right. Um, let's look for bear tracks. Let's try to find a bear. <laughs> that would be a hard find. Yeah. So let's talk, though, about um, what I've always said were these seven sleepers right, right. of Western New York. So back in my... He's the one who coined that. No. <laughs> I cannot take credit for that. So in my uh, college days, uh, taking field ecology and, and other courses, um, the instructor who we probably mentioned before, Sandy Geffner. Yeah. Uh, uh, he runs a, a great environmental ed group called uh, Earth, Earth Spirit, Spirit Educational so Services. check that out. But he talked about the seven sleepers of Western New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this can really apply to most of the Northeast. Yeah. So you have what we consider consider the true hibernators, mm-hmm. and that is the woodchuck, yep. also known as the groundhog, uh, yep. the jumping mouse, and then some of our species of bats. Yeah, well, you say the jumping mouse, but there's actually two species in our area. That is true. Yep, there's the woodland jumping mouse and the meadow jumping mouse. And both of them are true hibernators, right? Yes, and they're both true hibernators. So these are animals that enter a state of deep torpor, where temperature, heart rate, uh, breathing rate, everything slows down significantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jumping mice have a funny family name. The Pipotidae, they're... (laughs) Pipopids or pipopids. <laughs> and do you have are, any idea what uh, what that means? No, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a huge etymology guy, yeah. but I didn't do it for these ones. So I think it just means a cute uh, mammal that can carry horrible diseases. Yeah. <laughs> the jumping mice, yep. yes. All right, so when I was first learning about the, the seven sleepers, at the time, the chipmunk was kind of placed in the middle, that it sometimes enters a deep hibernation state, but then it also uh, spends a lot of time in um, like a lighter torpor state. Oh. Uh, and since it does not build up a layer of body fat, uh, it's, it's a little different than those true hibernators mm-hmm. uh, because it is eating uh, during the winter period. Yeah. So when it was taught to me, the chipmunk was, was kind of placed a little differently. And then you had what were called the deep sleepers, and that's the raccoon, the bear, and the skunk. Oh, yeah. Um, but... I've, t- I've taught about the seven sleepers. I used to work at a nature center. So I've, I can't tell you how many programs I've done where I taught about hibernation. And now, after doing this research, I really feel like I was giving out misinformation. The black bear, I would consider it a hibernator. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't want to call it misinformation. I think 
sometimes you do have to keep it a little bit simpler than it actually is. Yeah, so I guess so. I, I'm, I'm kind of for the idea where when kids are young, you kind of lie to them to make things a little, not, you don't lie to them. You just, you maybe oversimplify a problem just yes. so they can start to understand it. No, I agree. And I then agree. If, if it makes sense for them to continue in that research going forward, then they'll then find... Then they're going to find all the nuances out for themselves. Right, right. Yeah. So I think it's fine right. that some people just say hibernation for the seven sleepers. Um, yeah, let's go that way. It looks kind of menacing. <laughs> So, We're on a beautiful field right now, and just to relate back to the first two episodes, there's so much goldenrod now that's gone to seed. Yeah. And these guys will be carried by the wind. Unlike the pollen, <laughs> the seed is carried by the wind. Yes. And uh, and in terms of leaves on the trees, Bill, this is Pretty the first time everything is gone that I've noticed. Yeah. All right. So just to review quickly, the the seven sleepers, those mm -hmm. mammals that are, are hibernators around here, the true hibernators were the yes. woodchuck, jumping mouse, and bat. And the deep uh -huh. sleepers yeah. were the raccoons, or northern raccoon, the striped skunk, and the bear. And the bear. Wait, but is I, that only six? That's only six, because then remember there's the chipmunk. Oh, right. Uh, who kind of rides the fence. Oh, uh, yeah. He sometimes will enter a deep hibernation state, mm -hmm. and he will eat during the wintertime. All right, so let's talk, let's get into bears. Sure. So that was going to be uh, the specific species we were going to focus on with regard to hibernation. So. Yeah. I think one of the coolest parts about black bears and hibernation is that they actually give birth during hibernation. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, a pregnant black bear, you prepare for hibernation. And I didn't come across in the research, but I vaguely remember this from you know teaching about black bears, is they had they have delayed implantation. Yes, they do. So if they don't find enough food, they won't implant their eggs in the uterine wall. Mm -hmm. They'll basically abort the pregnancy. Yeah, th I think that's one of the main stages. So it's this implantation, birth, and, and lactation. All of those happen during hibernation. During hibernation, yeah. so. Pretty cool. I mean, that's gotta be a great way to go through that. I mean, um, birth is you know a beautiful thing, it's a miracle, but uh, it, there are aspects of it that are somewhat unpleasant. You're biased, <laughs> all right? You're biased about this because you have a daughter. I've watched it happen. But I think that would be a great thing to go into hibernation. Your your cubs are born. You go back to sleep, and your cubs just suckle for a few months, getting what they need in terms of heat and food from you, more or less. Yeah. And then when the bear's ready to come out of hibernation, the cubs are large enough where they just kind of follow her out of the hibernacula. Uh, that sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah. Now, I will say that I had a much more pleasant view of that whole process when I thought hibernation was like a deep, pleasant sleep. Uh, now that I know, it might be worse because that would be like giving birth while trying to sleep on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's even more unpleasant. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Steve is trying to navigate around a, a deep puddle here. You know what, Steve? I think we should just stick to the woods. It's weird. It's like the main path is soaking wet, but the woods looks perfectly dry and pleasant. Yeah. It's kind of nice, though. We have all these, uh, you know, standing trees with no leaves. We're walking through piles of what look like mainly beach. Uh, this must be mainly a beach forest. Yeah. Beach maple, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ah. mostly seeing, every now and then I see a beach. We have ferns. This that, is perfect, though. Go ahead. Yeah. Raspberry so we have raspberry. Bear. We have some ferns. We have beach maple. It's kind of nice. It's it's uh, This is always a super relaxing time of year. There's a lot of species that just stick it out. Yeah. And they stay awake and everything. Also, I just heard a blue jay out in the distance. You may have heard that. He may be uh, calling. 
because of our presence. Yeah. Right? In the previous episodes, we we are talking about goldenrods. We could see tons of goldenrods. Right. When we're when we are talking about leaf colors, we could see all these different species of trees and everything, and talk about uh, the pigments and and everything else. But with mammals. We saw one chipmunk. Right. Uh, but. <laughs> we might hear a bear. Uh, <laughs> we will not hear a bear. Most of the <laughs> yeah, the, if you hear a, uh, a growling and then Bill and I getting eaten. We have <laughs> like grizzly black, man. Black bear men. <laughs> Check out the documentary Grizzly Man. Incredible, yeah. yeah. Werner Herzog. Yes. Um, excellent man. But I was going to say, before you started talking and going off on that tangent. Oh, I love tangents, though. I did, <laughs> I did see a tree here that is a perfect segue we're talking about bears oh nice beech trees produce beech nuts in the fall right uh and have you ever had beech nuts i have not eaten beech nuts they're no good they're good so the shell of the nut is uh covered with small spines mm-hmm. um and it's kind of like a, a four-sided pyramid shape a yep. rounded pyramid shape and when you open it up on the inside is um, uh, a pyramid shaped nut mm-hmm. and you peel off the thin brown skin to get to the nut on the inside they are delicious the beech nut, and I'm holding one right now. We found one on the ground. Very, very soft. Yeah, so soft. Very enjoyable soft to spines. rub. Yeah. Uh, this is nice. But, you know, I found these, um, and I don't know how they fall this way, but it's like they fall with the stem of the pod down, and sometimes uh, it'll stab, like, into a leaf or something. Almost like there. the nut is being presented. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe really there's cool. some, uh, there must be, maybe some purpose for that if you weren't just seeing a fluke or if that yeah. is designed to happen. Yeah, why there. would it fall that way down? I don't but know. But bears uh, in... Our neck of the woods, where there's you know a lot of beech trees, they do eat a lot of beech nuts mm-hmm. in the fall. And like most nuts, it's high in protein. There's a lot of good nutrition in there. And have have you heard of bear nests before? In the fall, the bears will climb up into these trees, and they will bend branches back towards themselves, clean off all the beech nuts, and then just move on to the next branch and keep bending them back wow. towards themselves. So they're not nesting up there. It's yeah. just a feeding spot. Wow, that's uh, really cool. So at least in that location where there's a lot of beech trees, they're eating a lot of beech nuts. So mm-hmm. much so, so that you can see evidence of their feeding wow. the trees. Um, but let's talk about hibernation in bears because you'll notice when I d- talked about the seven sleepers, when I learned about that, we said, oh, bears aren't true hibernators. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the big reason for that is because the reason people thought that was because a bear's temperature body temp in hibernation does not drop uh, as significantly as in a woodchuck or in a jumping mouse, something like Mm. that. Did we say what the temperature was? I don't think we did. Do you have that? Yeah, I do. So their normal temperature is about 38 degrees Celsius. That's like 100, 100 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. And then their body temperature only drops 7 degrees Celsius. So I do remember saying that it drops 7 degrees Celsius. I have down their temperature drops from 110 to 84 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, well, I have from 100, I have 100.4 to 87.8. So okay. really close. Uh, their heart rate, though, does drop significantly. It goes mm-hmm. from 90 beats per minute down to 8 beats per minute. Yep. Um, so I've looked at, I looked at a couple studies that were kind of trying to answer the question, do black bears hibernate? And the studies said that Bears display unusual patterns of metabolic and thermal regulation during hibernation, as well as when they emerge from the spring. So things are going on. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, and know, they something that's very interesting about bears? What? Is that um, even though they're not drinking, eating, urinating, or defecating, their protein synthesis, totally normal. So it's going on just like it always would. Yeah. The big difference is that protein breakdown, especially in muscle protein, that slows dramatically. 
And so this sort of explains the warmth somewhat. So you have like relatively high protein and lipid metabolism and that's generating the, that metabolic heat. Okay. Um, as well as their large body size that we had talked about before where as the larger you are, the more you can keep heat in. Mm-hmm. And also their thick fur. So they have large body size, they have the thick fur, and they have this metabolic heat. So right. they're staying at a pretty warm temperature and that may be why they can't, their body just can't drop. Right, and they're, even though their temperatures hasn't dropped significantly, Mm-hmm. Their metabolism is suppressed about 25%. That was from a study in 2011 in Science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what all the research seems to be saying is, despite temperature not dropping significantly, bears are still hibernating. But that's the amazing thing about bears is hibernation was almost always related to temperature, to a drop in temperature. Mm-hmm. But bears are doing, they're hibernating independent of a drop in temperature. So they're almost doing like their own kind of hibernation. Yeah. And in all this research, I think, uh, again, that guy, Brian Barnes, I keep mentioning, he said that hibernation means different things for different animals. So it's so. hibernation for some other animals, and then it's hibernation. <laughs> hibernation. For- <laughs> I can't believe no one came up with that. <laughs> I'm the first one. Very nice, David. <laughs> but I, I just want to stress that that is a big deal, this understanding, because it almost forced biologists to rethink hibernation. Right. That they bears have this metabolic suppression, independent of lowered body temperature. Mm-hmm. So that in the hibernation world, that was like, this is a big deal. So yeah. yes, they are hibernating, but they're doing it in in a different way than what we're used to. So sort of to link up something that I said before, you, you asked me what system in the bear's body regulates right. hibernation. You said the endocrine system. Yeah. My guess was the blood. And the reason I guessed that was actually it had something to do with this protein breakdown or this lack of protein breakdown in bears. Um, apparently, during hibernation, the bear is able to produce these inhibitors. And what they inhibit is this breakdown of proteins. I, I think what they call them is proteolytic inhibitor. Okay. And proteolysis. Uh, that's Sounds the good. breakdown of proteins into smaller uh, polypeptides and amino acids. And so if you're inhibiting that, and that's actually in the blood. There's some type of inhibitor in the blood. Yeah. And they, what they did in this experiment that I that I read about is I think they actually took plasma from bears and they ran it through mice. And it actually showed that the muscle was not degrading. There, there was a study that I came across where they took canine organs, so dog organs. Okay. And they took them out of a dog. They were basically mimicking an organ transplant. Mm-hmm. Took them out of a dog, washed them in plasma from a hibernating woodchuck and when they transplanted them into a a dog Mm -hmm. that they had less breakdown less damage uh, more success wow so whatever was in the woodchuck plasma it preserved the organ Mm -hmm. Uh, so they had you know control groups where they, they would transplant organs not using the plasma wash from hibernating woodchucks and those organs performed less well so and they said it was a significant difference wow uh and, again, Brian Barnes, I keep mentioning his name, but he <laughs> yeah. said in one of the articles I read, there are things that hibernating animals, their bodies know how to do that we have not figured out yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of the most interesting stuff you're going to oh, come yeah. about hibernation in bears is, is through the medical community and right, the research right. there. Yeah. And that goes into my next point about bears and bones. Okay? Oh, right. So jump in if you found more stuff about this. So Did you get this from the journal Bone? No, I didn't. I got one from the Journal of Bone. My, yeah. my, my journal sounds better. It's the Journal of Experimental Biology. Oh, yeah, mine was just bone. And then the article that I found was from 2009. All right, so uh, I found two articles, one from 06 and from 2015. 
It's a just like us and most animals, bears lose bone during extended periods of disuse. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're in the hospital laid up and you're not using your bones, there's going to be some atrophy. All right. Um, so it should be said that in mammals, um, bone formation is happening with what's called bone resorption. So your bones are always um, losing calcium and, and other things mm-hmm. going into your bloodstream, but you're also always forming new bone. Mm-hmm. Now, in babies, bone formation outpaces bone resorption. Yeah. Okay. So they're gaining bone faster than losing it. And what usually happens, unfortunately, for most people is as they get older, you lose more bone than you gain. Mm-hmm. And that's what leads to osteoporosis. Yeah. Okay. But we can look at bears because what these two studies looked at is well, how do bears compensate for this? Mm-hmm. And what they found is that while they're hibernating, bears suppress the usual constant release of calcium from the bones into their blood. The study that I found in 2009 said that there was the balance between the bone formation and reabsorption. You know what, though? Yeah. The, the one point I didn't say is that in the study it said both were suppressed. Oh, right. Okay. So that agrees with your study. Yeah. So in hibernation, bears, the loss of bone is suppressed, but also the formation of bone is suppressed. Right. But when bears come out of hibernation, bone formation for a few weeks after hibernation is four to five times higher than normal rate. Oh, wow. So if there was any kind of weakening during hibernation, it's kind of compensated for. Cool. And the crazy thing is that as bears age, their bones don't seem to be affected. So there's a 2003 study that showed bear bone strength and mineral content increases as they get older. Mm Mm-hmm which is the exact opposite of what happens to us. Yeah, holy cow. So if we could tap into that and figure out how are bears doing this, they're not only maintaining bone strength, uh, it actually gets better as they get older. Uh, That would mean huge things for humans. All right, so what else do you have on bears? I really only have one more study to bring up. There was this cool study in 2015 in the journal Ursus, Ah, which is kind of cool, right? And and so they wanted to test um, whether uh, food preference in the absence of other competing factors present in the wild um, that would influence their autumn foraging strategies. And so what they did is that they, they, they offered different food choices to these, to these different bears. There were some male, some female, and they had acorns. That was sort of like their natural food. Um, they also had field corn, which there's been a lot of like anecdotal reporting of, of bears getting into farmers' fields and eating their corn. And there's also a lot of calories in corn as well. Um, and then they also had two types of sunflowers. Uh-huh. I think one was the, the sunflower that they used for the oil and the other one they used for sunflower seeds. Okay. What they found was that males immediately preferred the oil sunflowers. That's the highest uh, caloric input. I mean, in their discussion, they sort of talked about why this might be. And that's that the males, they're not burdened with the cub rearing. Uh-huh. And so they don't really have to be safe about things they could just wander off trying new foods and and you find that male bears have usually larger ranges than female bears and that male bears are more determined to enhance their caloric intake so they seek out whatever foods that might help them out in some way and the ranges are further and and they're really less weary of threats and and they're totally fine with novel or like these new tastes and new foods and stuff whereas the females they actually had a, sort of a different result, and they found that females went for the acorns mostly. They were sort of playing it safe. They were like, oh, okay. I know that acorns are good. I'm going to do these acorns. I have to worry about my, you know, 
offspring. That's what it is. Um, females are a little territorial while they're when they're raising their young. Sure. So um, so they kind of stick into similar areas. They're probably eating the foods that they know are are good already. But what they found was that given enough time, the females switched from their acorn preference to the sunflower uh, preference. Okay. That was suggestive of learning. Over time, you know, they kind of they figured it out this that is the sunflower is good. Investment of energy. Right. Yeah. None of the bears are choosing corn. They're like, we know that bears go for corn. <laughs> but I think the problem was was the way the the experiment was set up. The choices were so close to each other that when the bears have the option to go for the sunflowers, they're going to choose it over the corn. Like almost every time. They have some way of knowing that the sunflower seeds have the best caloric I would value. think that, yeah, the sunflower seeds are, nutritionally speaking, not just in terms of straight-up calories. Right. Because corn is like the white bread of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But an interesting thing about the sunflowers is that, sure, they have the highest percentage of fat per dry mass, but they also have, like, the highest percentage of fiber, at least compared to, like, acorns. Right. Um and and so it kind of reduces the benefits to eating sunflowers, but uh, the, I don't think the bears really care about the fiber as much as they do the fat. I don't I don't know why, but I thought it was a really interesting study. How and they're also like farmers are not going to be able to stop bears from eating their crops, especially you know with the males who are like driven. Yeah. You know? um, and so what they suggest is growing these crops in fields as far away from natural bear habitats as possible. Makes sense. That may dissuade the female bears because the female bears aren't looking for this food. They're only right. going to have it if they have this choice readily in front of them. They're not going to really explore. And also the young learn from the mother. Like they can't stop the males, but they can at least stop the females. And then the young won't learn that so early on in life. Right. I had no bear. idea that it was an issue. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. All right, so the what I wanted to end with is not about bears, but I figured it'd be a good place to stop because naturally learning about hibernation, being somewhat species-centric, we're always thinking about, well, what does this mean for us? Mm-hmm. And I know you like to think about uh, big picture, what does this mean for space travel and, and being able to journey <laughs> to other, other, uh, other places. Um, oh, that big <laughs> universal picture. Yeah. So I'm going to bring it down to look at uh, more closer to home. So think about turtles. Turtles are one of those animals that many of them will bury themselves in mud or some kind of material and Mm -hmm. not take a breath all winter long. Natural mechanisms used by those turtles protect their brain and their heart from the effects of oxygen deprivation, right? Hmm. So if we look at those mechanisms and look at related mechanisms in humans, we can improve heart attack and stroke care. So uh, the Washington University Genome Institute they found 19 genes in painted turtles' brains and 23 in their heart that are activated in low oxygen conditions. These same genes also occur in us, and they may prove useful in exploring treatments that can be designed to reduce or prevent damage. So, wow, so they're just coiled up tightly in our chromosomes, and they're just not being expressed. That's, so they're there. That's super cool. Yeah, so yeah. I think like there are so many areas of hibernation that are, are being explored and are waiting to be explored. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be good news for us further down the line. Yeah. Maybe. Right. All right. So do you have anything else? No, I think that's right. it. So I think we should uh, thank people for the likes on Facebook. We, we reached 200 Woo! likes. Yay! <laughs> I'm really excited about 200. That's oh, great. Oh, no, that's oh, great. Yeah. And we really do appreciate people that are listening and commenting. Right. It's very nice to know that people are interested. So please spread the word out there. Uh, we are on iTunes now, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think we were. No, no. Uh, it only happened a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so yeah. thank you to Steve for looking into that and making that happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
So please tell your friends. Uh, it's much easier to, to get the podcast now if, if they're used to going through iTunes to get their podcasts. Right. So. And if you want to see some posts from us, I think in the last podcast we say we, we would only post like twice a month. But I ended up posting a couple more, just, just little things that were related to the episodes, little right. little short video clips no, I that I found. I think we should do that, yeah. Yeah. I think we will periodically just, not a lot, just maybe a couple times a week or once a week, we'll post something interesting that has to do with our topic. Uh, sign up to get, like, notifications from us. And so, yeah, if you want to see what we have to share, uh, I'm sure it'll be pretty interesting. And So thank you, everyone. Thank you for the likes, and we hope you enjoy this episode. And Have a good Thanksgiving. Yep. Oh, right, right, right. right. And we will see you next month. All right, see ya. All right.